The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. What a privilege and joy it is to be able to participate in uh, these kinds of things. And uh, please be praying for them. They leave Saturday. They'll be gone for nine, uh, 11 days. Uh, so please just commit them to prayer and uh, pray that the Lord will work in and through them as they uh, are a part of this ministry opportunity. Also, we encourage you to pray about day camp. Uh, Kurt just mentioned that. Day camp is a one week away from tomorrow. And so we ask you to pray for that ministry. There are almost uh, 300 kids signed up um, already uh, to be on campus here in just a week. And so we're grateful for that opportunity. And uh, we have, at this point, 26 scholarships that have been applied for and uh, 14 sponsors. If you're able to uh, sponsor a camper uh, yet before the ministry starts in a week, please see Laura today. And there's also some opportunities to serve. There's some needs for some posters and some signs to be made. So if you could see Laura uh, today and let her know that you're able to be a part of that, I know she would greatly appreciate uh, that ministry. Also, just a couple other announcements. Today is our uh, church picnic, our church uh, meal together. We're, we're going outside. So uh, everything's set up in the pavilion. So uh, please join us for that after our baptism service today. And I know you'll be blessed just to have a meal together with fellow uh, believers. Uh, one other thing, uh, Brienne Kerr uh, received an outstanding award just a few days ago. She received the Francis Shoe Award at her school as a senior. That's a great honor. So if you see Brienne, make sure you congratulate her on uh, that honor. It's great. Well, we're not going to dismiss our kids today because uh, they get to stay and listen to testimonies here in a little while. So we are going to leave the kids in our service uh, today so they can hear what God has done in the lives of these people who will be baptized today. I think I say this every year, but this is clearly one of my favorite Sundays as we as a church family get to participate in baptism. We get to witness baptisms. We get to hear testimonies. And in a moment, you're going to hear from four people who want to be obedient to Christ in the waters of baptism and I know you're going to be greatly blessed as they come in a short time to share their testimonies with you. You know, there's no such thing as a boring testimony. It doesn't matter if you were saved as a young person in your family or if you came to faith in Christ uh, through years of rebellion against the Lord. It doesn't matter if you come to Christ and you're being obedient to Him in the waters of baptism. There is no such thing as a boring testimony. And we rejoice to, in a few moments here uh, them explain how God has worked in their lives to bring them to Himself. Before we do that, though, I want to take some time to work through a, a topic with you related to this, related to the topic of baptism. I want to take some time to preach on this because I believe it's crucial for us to understand this issue. We have only two ordinances in the church today. This is far different from what it was like in the Old Testament where there were sacrifices and ceremonies and festivals and feasts and special days and, and all kinds of different things that, that would be considered ordinances. Whereas today in the church, we have just two, just two ordinances that we as the church family, as the New Testament church celebrate. Those would be the Lord's Supper, communion, which is an ongoing reminder of the work of Jesus Christ and it's something that we do here once a month to celebrate what Christ has done in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. And then baptism is a one-time reminder in the life of every individual believer of the work that Christ has done for them personally and identifying with His death and His resurrection. And so it's important that, that we understand both of these issues. And so for some time this morning, I would like to preach on baptism. 
It's crucial that we understand that because this is really the defining mark of Christian identity. Uh, Really, this is the mark that perhaps most closely associates us with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's what identifies us with Him, and and maybe it's the closest symbol, the closest uh, illustration, the closest example of what it means to be brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. As someone is baptized, they're identifying with the work of Christ, and they're identifying with His sacrifice. They're identifying with His new life and His resurrection. So it's crucial that, that we understand what this ordinance is all about. And to do that this morning, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Romans 4. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that this is where we're at. And God providentially has ordained that the passage I preached last week is a significant passage on the issue of baptism. And so I love how God does this. I didn't plan that. Just God has a way of kind of orchestrating our preaching schedules. And so the very passage I preached last week is one of the primary passages in the New Testament concerning baptism. You may not know that because it's not in there, specifically by word, but you need to understand that the passage I preached, Romans 4, verses 9 through 12, and particularly verse 11, is one of the primary passages upon which the doctrine of infant baptism is built. This is one of the maybe linchpin passages related to the support of infant baptism. Now, to introduce this topic, you'll be reminded that there are two basic positions in the New Testament church on this issue. There is credo-baptism and there is pedo-baptism. Credo-baptism is the belief that baptism is for believers. It is for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is for baptism of disciples alone. It is for those who have already placed their trust in Christ and responded in faith and repentance. It is for those who have already believed Him as their Lord and Savior. And then following that comes baptism. That is credo-baptism baptism or believer's baptism. That's where we are as a church. This is our position at Maranatha Bible Church. We hold to credo baptism or believer's baptism. On the other side of this issue is the issue of infant baptism, also known as pedo baptism, pedo from the word paideia, the Greek word for child. So this is literally child baptism or infant baptism. And it's this position that says that infant children of believing parents should be baptized or sprinkled as infants. And at the heart of this issue, at the heart of this position, is the belief that there's a connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. That's really the heart of this issue, that those who hold to infant baptism would see that there's a connection or a correspondence to the work of Old Testament circumcision. And so this position, paedo-baptism, is really built upon an assumption where the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there's a connection between circumcision and New Testament baptism. Now you can understand the connection with Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, because as we saw last week, this is a passage about circumcision. And so for many in that camp, in that position, there is a and a belief that this passage, particularly verse 11, is really the key text that links for us circumcision in the Old Testament as a sign of the Old Covenant and infant baptism today in the church as a sign of the New Covenant. 
So what I want to do to you, with you today is I want to walk through this position and this passage to show you where that position comes from, and then I want to persuade you that I don't think it's a biblical, proper interpretation of this passage. And I don't want to just be polemical or, or just create a debate, but simply I just want to inform you. I, I want you to be informed as a, as a believer on this issue and be able to uh, rightly divide the Word as it comes to this issue. Now, before I say any more, I need to say that there are fellow believers that hold to the position of infant baptism whom I deeply respect. Uh, this is not an issue that we will divide over in terms of fellowship or friendship or anything like that. That's not that kind of issue. There are many in the reform camp who we would identify with in terms of our doctrinal position as well. We hold many of the doctrinal truths together in similarity with them. And so in that sense, they are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord, love the gospel, and preach it faithfully. Yesterday, I was at a triathlon and uh, did a race with Kevin DeYoung who is a Reformed pastor in East Lansing, and I spent a good 20, 30 minutes with Kevin yesterday uh, just talking and just fellowshipping and enjoying a fellow brother in the Lord who uh, is a fellow pastor and a faithful communicator of God's Word, who is a gifted preacher, who's uh, very astute theologically. Uh, we enjoyed some wonderful fellowship, but we're on different issues, different pages on this issue, and that's okay. So this is not one of those issues that, that we divide fellowship over, but it is an issue that I believe we want to be attentive to, and we want to be able to understand what the Word says on this issue. So my hope today is to, to give you an explanation of where those in that camp would hold their position from verse 11, and then give you a defense of uh, our position in terms of believer's baptism. I did a message on this a few years ago. If you're interested more in this topic, I would invite you to go to our website, and you can look at or listen to that message a couple years ago on infant baptism versus believer's baptism. Let me just quickly summarize some reasons why we do not hold to infant baptism here. First, number one, is it's not commanded in the Bible. We don't see anywhere in Scripture where infant baptism is given as a command. It's not given as instruction. There's no mandate. There's no command. There's no exhortation. There's no instruction whatsoever anywhere, Old or New Testament, to sprinkle or baptize infants. It's not there explicitly, and I don't believe it's there implicitly as well. So, first of all, we don't see a command in Scripture for this. Secondly, we don't see it modeled anywhere. We don't see it modeled anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere are we going to find an example in the Scriptures of, of an infant being sprinkled or, in their terms, baptized. Now, oftentimes at this point, the argument goes toward the household baptisms where there must have been infants in the so-called household baptisms. So some examples of this would be Lydia in Acts chapter 16 where she came to faith in Christ and it says she and her household were baptized. The assumption was that there must have been children or must have been infants in that household that were also a part of that baptism. Same thing in Acts chapter 16, also verse 33, the Philippian jailer who likewise came to faith in Christ, and it says he was immediately baptized, he and all his household. Same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 16 where it refers to Stephanus and his household being baptized as well. And the assumption is that there must have been within those households then children or infants that participated in those household baptisms. And yet I would argue that that's an argument from silence. It's an argument from silence because it doesn't specifically tell us that children were there. 
And so we have to read into that text or those texts to really come to the point where we see that children are present or were present at those baptisms. Okay, so it's not commanded in Scripture. It's not modeled in Scripture. Thirdly, we need to understand that in every instance in the Bible where there is a baptism, faith always precedes the baptism. And that's crucial. There, there is a pattern within the Scripture as we walk through the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts. The pattern is almost always, or is always, faith, baptism. Faith, baptism. Faith, baptism. Conversion first, justification first, salvation first, and then baptism. That's always the order. It's never in reverse. We can see that in Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 people came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost. And it says because of that faith in Christ, they were then baptized. Faith, then baptism. We can see it in Acts chapter 8 where the men and women of Samaria heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and then they were baptized. We can see it in Acts chapter 8 where Philip, the eunuch, or Philip was preaching the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he came to faith in Christ and was then baptized. We can see it in Acts chapter 19. As Paul is preaching to the disciples of John, they come to faith in Christ and then are baptized. And so the order is always that order. Faith, conversion, salvation, justification, followed by baptism. It's never the other way around. I think we need to understand that. We need to understand that that is the model in the New Testament. So it's not commanded. It's not modeled. Uh, Faith always precedes baptism. Fourthly, I think infant baptism misses the significance of baptism. It misses the significance of baptism. And by that, I mean that the word baptism itself means to immerse. It means to dip completely. In some cases, it means to drown. We're not going to do that today, but that's what the word means. It means to literally push under or place under or submerge into the water. And when you come to the Scriptures, you see the New Testament, that's the example that we see modeled everywhere when someone is baptized. It was example, exemplified by Christ, who himself was baptized, and it says he came up out of the water in Matthew chapter 3. Mark chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist was baptizing, and he was baptizing in the Jordan River. And in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian, which I just mentioned, it says, he says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop, and he went down into the water Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. There's a picture here. There's a a symbol here that's important. The symbol is a person going into the water, being submerged, immersed fully, entirely in the water as a picture of the washing away of their their old life and their sin. And as they come up out of the water, there's a cleansing. There's a a newness to life, which, which symbolizes the newness that they have in Christ. Now, the baptism itself doesn't do that. It's Christ who does that, and baptism is then the picture of that. So, for all of those reasons, I I don't believe the Scripture would support an infant baptism. And yet, despite that, there are um, the assumption and the part of some paedo-baptists that this text right here, verse 11, is one of the primary texts to demonstrate a support for infant baptism. So I want to walk through this text with you. Let me read the passage. Let's look at it together, and then we'll talk about it. Look in verse 9, Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Paul writes, Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. 
And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. I want you to notice verse 11. And I want you to notice a phrase in verse 11 that is really the, the linchpin for uh, a Pado baptist position. It says in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. And that right there is the, the linking phrase which links supposedly circumcision with infant baptism, just as Circumcision was given in the Old Testament as a sign of the Old Covenant. Therefore, in the minds of the Pedobaptists, is infant baptism then must likewise be a sign of the New Covenant and should be given to children of believers today. So there's a correlation seen in this passage between Old Testament circumcision and the Old Covenant and New Testament and the sign of the New Covenant in infant baptism. How do we deal with this? How are we to respond to this argument. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you two instructions for dealing with Romans 4.11 being the linchpin for infant baptism. I want to give you two instructions. First one is to, to understand the essence of the argument, and I want you to understand it. And then secondly, I want you to know how to respond to that argument just so you're well informed on, on this issue. Okay, for first number one, let me take you through this. First of all is to understand the essence of the argument. I want you to understand how uh, it could be read that there is a link here in verse 11 between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. So I want you to first understand the essence of the argument. Let me begin by saying that you could summarize this argument by five words. Baptism is what circumcision was. If you get that, you understand the argument. Baptism is what circumcision was. In other words, the belief that baptism has replaced circumcision as a sign of the covenant is really the foundational element in this argument for infant baptism. The belief is that there must be a link, there must be a correspondence between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament infant baptism. And so they are both seen as covenant signs. One, the Old Covenant, the other one, a New Covenant. The Old Covenant sign was a baby being circumcised, and the New Covenant sign is a baby being sprinkled or baptized. So that's, that's the logic. That's, that's the theology behind infant baptism. And so let me explain to you how uh, there are some that get to that from verse 11, and then we'll talk about a response to that. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. We looked at this last week, but I want to just remind you of what circumcision was from the beginning. And we know that circumcision was given way back in Genesis chapter 17 as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we did talk about it last week, but go with me to Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10. And this is where Moses describes for us the sign given to Abraham is a sign of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant 
to Abraham. Verse 10 of Genesis chapter 17 says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between you and me. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. So right there in Genesis chapter 17, we learn that God has given to Abraham and to his descendants then a promise, and he's signified that promise with circumcision. Now, you remember what God promised Abraham? He promised to bless him. He promised to bless his people. He promised to to give him a son, and not only a son, but many descendants. And he promised to, to pull those descendants together into a nation, an ethnic people that became the Jewish people. And he promised to not only bless them as a nation, but to also bless all nations through them. And so this was really the heart and the soul of God's promise to Abraham to, to bless him, to make his name great, to make him a great nation, to give his descendants the land of Canaan, and then to signify those promises with circumcision. And so listen, the primary purpose of circumcision was to mark out a people, to mark out Israel as God's nation, to to signify that they are a national entity, a a physical people, a, a people who are ethnically set apart by God to be His people, distinguished from all other people at that time. And so, this is the significance of circumcision. It marked them out as a nation. It marked them out as an ethnic people set apart from the other people. And it, and it marked them out by circumcising them, the males, and that was a way to point ahead to the Messiah, that there would be a coming Messiah through, uh, the Messiah would come through that male line in the line of Abraham. Now, because this sign of circumcision was applied uh, to infants, in the Old Testament, and because paedo-baptists today believe that circumcision has replaced, has been replaced by the sign of baptism, they believe it's, it's crucial for Christians today to baptize their infant children. You say, where do they make the link? The link comes in verse 11. Let me explain it to you. Look at verse 11. It says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while un circumcised. Now listen very carefully. Paul here assigns a spiritual significance to Abraham's circumcision. Let me say that again. Paul assigns here in verse 11 a spiritual significance to Abraham's circumcision. And he says that that circumcision was a mark of his faith. Does that make sense? It's a sign. It's a seal of the faith, that's what verse 11 says, which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul attributes here to Abraham's circumcision a spiritual meaning, a spiritual component, a signifying of his faith. And so the argument goes, because baptism today also signifies faith, therefore there must be a link between Old Testament circumcision 
and New Testament baptism. That's the argument. Now, let me explain it to you. Verse 9. I looked at this briefly. Let me just quickly summarize from last week. Verse 9 says, Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. God makes it very clear through Paul that Abraham was justified on the basis of faith, not his works, not his self-effort, not his religious accomplishments. Abraham was saved. He was justified. He was declared righteous because of his faith, his belief in God and the promises that he made, and ultimately in Christ. That's what verse 9 says. Verse 10 then says, how then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so Paul points out here that this happened before Abraham was circumcised. Remember, we looked at the chronology last week of the the chronology of these events in Genesis, and we said that Abraham was justified, he was declared righteous, he was saved well before he received the sign of circumcision. We said last week in Genesis chapter 15, he was declared righteous. We don't know how old he was when he was declared righteous. In Genesis 16, he had a son named Ishmael. And we know that when he had a son, Ishmael, he was 86 years old. Genesis chapter 17, very next chapter, says he was 99 when he was circumcised. So we don't know how old he was when he was declared righteous, but we know that after that, he was 86 when he was the father of Ishmael, and that he was 99 when he was circumcised. We know that there's a gap of at least 13 or 14 years between the birth of his son Ishmael and his receiving of the covenant and the sign of the covenant in the sign of circumcision. So at least 14 years passed. So he wasn't saved by his circumcision. He wasn't saved by any religious effort or any any works at all. He was saved solely by faith. So that's what Paul is saying up to this point. Then verse 11, here's the crux of the argument. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while circumcised. So Paul here describes Abraham's circumcision as a sign of his faith. And this is why this is important, because Paul attributes to Abraham's circumcision a spiritual meaning that is like the meaning of baptism in the New Testament. We say today that baptism is an expression of faith. We, we say that it's an evidence of genuine faith and a right standing with God. Baptism is an expression of faith. And it seems here that Paul is also stating the same thing, that in Romans 4.11, circumcision is said to be a sign of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. So it appears that baptism and circumcision are, are making a statement about the same thing, about faith. Circumcision was said to be a sign of Abraham's faith When we come to the New Testament, it is said that baptism is a sign of faith as well, so they must be corresponding to the same thing. They're both an expression and a sign of faith. So, if circumcision and baptism signify the same thing, then you can't say, the argument goes, that baptism is an extension of or an expression of a sign of faith. Infants can't have faith, therefore don't baptize infants. They would say, you can't say that because circumcision was given to infants before they could express faith. Does that make sense? This is the connection. So even though 
Circumcision is described by Paul here as a sign and seal of Abraham's righteousness of faith. It was to be given to his infant sons before they could ever respond in faith, before they could ever express confidence in the Lord and be saved. So if circumcision can be a sign of faith and righteousness and still be given to all the male children who don't have faith yet themselves, why could we not apply infant baptism to infants of believing children when they themselves don't have faith yet? Have I thoroughly confused you? That's, that's the argument. Uh, that, that's what you need to understand. And so I, I, I do that because I want you to get it. I want you to see how the connections are made. So Paul's description here of circumcision as a sign and a seal of Abraham's faith is said to provide support for infant baptism by indicating that circumcision signifies the same thing as infant baptism signifies. Now, when someone argues for this from this position, they do not mean that everyone who is circumcised will, would have been saved. We need to be fair here. They, they don't say that just because someone was circumcised in the Old Testament, they were guaranteed to be a true child of Abraham. They understood that many of those in Israel were not true children of Abraham. So they say that circumcision was not actually a sign of inward spiritual transformation, but it was a sign that God would give righteousness to that person who has faith eventually. Therefore, we can baptize or sprinkle infants who don't have faith yet with the same assumption that one day when they have faith, God would be faithful to his promise to save them in the same way he would have been faithful to Abraham's children to redeem them by faith. And so, in this scheme, infant baptism is not dependent on an infant's faith. It's dependent upon God's faithfulness to His promises. And so, you can baptize an infant today looking ahead to their faith in the same way that they could circumcise a child, a male child, in that day looking ahead to his faith as well. That's the argument. Baptism is what circumcision was. How do we respond? Uh, you, need, you need to think through this. And the reason I want you to think through this is you live in West Michigan. Th this is the argument. This is what you're going to encounter in many, many, many churches in West Michigan. So I want you to be loving. I want you to be gracious. But I want you to be informed. So point number two. I want you to develop a response to this argument. Okay, number one, point number one was to understand the essence of the argument. Point number two then is to develop a response to this argument. How do we respond? Is infant sprinkling the new covenant equivalent of old covenant circumcision? Is that true? Is that link made? Is that correspondence there? Is baptism a sign and a seal of the new covenant to be applied to believers and their children in the same way that circumcision was to Abraham and his children and his descendants? Does baptism signify faith in the same way that circumcision signified faith under the old covenant? Well, let me give you some responses. I don't think you're going to be able to write these down. You can try. Uh, but I want you just to listen briefly because you need to just think through this with me. If you want to come back and listen to this message later, you can. But don't, don't try and write these down. But here's, here's some ways that we could respond to this. First, number one, this verse, verse 11, is not giving a general definition of the significance of circumcision for everybody, 
but solely for Abraham. That's important. Paul is not here making a statement about the significance of circumcision for everybody who received it in the Old Covenant, but he's instead describing the significance of the sign for Abraham alone. That's important. The significance of it being a sign of faith was to be for Abraham, not for all of his descendants, even though all of his descendants received the sign of circumcision, but it didn't have the significance that it had for Abraham. Now, let me put it another way. Romans 4 verse 11 is not talking about circumcision in general, but rather the circumcision of Abraham alone. Say, so what do you mean by that? Look at verse 11. Who's it referring to? Who is referred to as receiving the sign and the seal of the righteousness by faith? It's he. Who's the he in verse 11? It's Abraham. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. And so the, the, the object here of the sign of circumcision, which signified faith, is Abraham. It's not everybody. Even though everybody received the sign, the spiritual significance of the sign is associated with and assigned only to Abraham. And I think that's the straightforward reading of the text. The straightforward, simple reading of the passage is that it's Abraham's faith that was being signified in the sign of circumcision. And even though it was to be applied to all of his descendants, the same spiritual significance did not apply to them, so we could say that in a sense, Abraham's circumcision was unique to him. And the value assigned to it was unique to him because he was the father of the Jews and the father of all who would believe. And I think that's what the text says. Look at verse 11 and 12. There's a so that here. And Paul is very clear to show that the sign of circumcision for Abraham himself, which signified his faith, has significance in that, verse 12 says, he might, uh, end of verse 11, he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of the circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Abraham is unique. And he's unique in that he's not only the father of the Jews, he's the father of all believing Gentiles. So that makes him and his position and his circumcision very distinct and very unique. And so it served as a seal of the righteousness by faith for Abraham alone and was never intended to have this meaning for the other members of the covenant. I think that's a faithful rendering of of that passage. So let me quote someone here. It says, to associate or to assimilate the meaning of any and every circumcision in redemptive history to the meaning of Abraham's circumcision as a means of constructing some subtle argument for paedo-baptism, which is wholly extraneous to Paul's context, is to miss the point and to turn Paul on his head in the service of paedo-baptism. We, we can't assimilate the meaning of Abraham's circumcision and apply that to everyone who is circumcised in the Old Testament because Paul doesn't do that here. Paul simply associates that meaning to Abraham's circumcision alone. So that's one argument. That's one response to the argument. 
that we can't look at the Old Testament circumcision and say every male child who was circumcised at eight days old, that signified their faith. It doesn't say that because Paul is very clear here to signify that the significance of the circumcision was for Abraham alone. So infant baptism then cannot be a sign of faith for all infants because circumcision was never intended to be a sign of faith for all in the Old Testament. That's one response. Response number two. Are you, are you still with me? Are you still tracking? Sort of. All right, hang in there. Second response is there are differences between how God gathered His people in the Old Testament and how God constitutes His people in the New Testament. We cannot say that God gathered His people or constituted His people in the Old Testament in the same way that He constitutes His people in the New Testament. There's not a continuity there. There's a similarity. There's not a continuity. And so we have to be very clear that that the main problem with using this text to prove infant baptism is a wrong assumption about the similarity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. He gathers them in similar ways, but not identical ways. And if we can understand that, we, we can get an insight into this text because this assumption leads to the conclusion that baptism and circumcision are identical when they're not. Now, let me explain that to you. Uh, how did God identify His people in the Old Testament? He identified them with a the mark of circumcision. All of them. Every single person in the Old Testament who was circumcised in fulfillment of Abraham's uh, sign of faith here and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, every one of them received that sign, but not every one of them were regenerate. And so what you had in Old Testament Israel was a mixed people. You had physical Israel, and within physical Israel, you had spiritual Israel. But not all Israel was spiritual Israel. Not all Israel was saved. Not all Israel was redeemed. In fact, most of them weren't. Let me show you. Go back to Romans and go to Romans 9, verse 6. Romans 9, verse 6. I'm, what I'm trying to do here is build a case for how God gathered His people in the Old Testament and to show you that it's different or distinct from how God gathers His people in the New Testament. So look at verse, nine, or verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. Paul says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Just because someone was an Israelite doesn't mean they were a true Israelite. You understand what that means? What that means is you could receive the sign of circumcision and be an Israelite and yet still be unregenerate, lost, and not a true child of God, which is the, the case for most Jews. There was only a small remnant. There was only a small group within Israel as a nation that were truly redeemed. They're the, they're the truly saved, the remnant of God. They were circumcised and they were redeemed, but they were from a group that was much larger who were also circumcised but not redeemed. And so in the Old Testament, in Israel, you had a mixed people. You had physical Israel and you had spiritual Israel. Look at verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Just because you were a Jew doesn't mean you were a child of Abraham, spiritually. 
but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So he's saying it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God. Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're a true child of God. You could be circumcised in the Old Testament and not truly be a child of God. But, verse 8, the children of the promise, those are the ones that are regarded as descendants. So that's how God worked in the Old Testament. He gathered His people, the descendants of Abraham. He gave them all the sign of circumcision as a mark of the covenant which separated them from the nations of the world and made them a distinct people, an ethnic nation that marked, were marked by God as His people. But many of those, in fact, most of those who were circumcised were never truly children of God. And so circumcision, as a general rule was never intended to be a spiritual sign of the true people of God because you could be circumcised and not truly be redeemed. So that's Old Covenant. That's Old Testament. That's how God constituted His people. They were a mixed people, physical and spiritual, together into one entity known as Israel. Now, how does God constitute the church? The church is gathered in a far different way than that. The church is not a mixed people. The church is made up only of who? Believers. The true church of God is not a, a, a mixed group. It's not believers and unbelievers brought in together into one entity. No, the church, the true church is an entity which is comprised only of true believers. And so, you see where this is going. It's made up of only those who receive God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the church is only a spiritual community as opposed to both an ethnic and a spiritual community, which Israel was. Israel was ethnic. Israel was national. Israel was physical. And in the midst of them, there were some who were redeemed, but not the church. The church is solely a spiritual community built up and comprised of true believers, so you can't make the equation between circumcision and infant baptism. They don't mean the same thing. Circumcision identified you as a Jew in the Old Testament, whether you were saved or unsaved. Baptism is a mark of only the regenerate. And so that's another reason why the argument breaks down and why we would not hold to infant baptism. Third, there's one more. We'll wrap up with this. Although circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, it is not clear from the Bible that baptism is indeed a sign of the new covenant. We would agree that the Abrahamic covenant is a sign of the old covenant, but there's not agreement on the fact that baptism is the sign and the seal of the new covenant. What do I mean by that? I would actually argue that the Lord's Supper is the sign and the seal of the new covenant because Jesus says, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant. And so I would argue that it's not necessarily baptism, which is the sign and the seal of the, the new covenant, it is the Lord's Supper, communion which constitutes the sign and the seal 
of the new covenant. So, there's a lot more that could be said, but those would be some reasons why I believe we have to reject infant baptism, and that's how we would respond to Romans chapter 4, verse 11. And my hope to this morning was not to overburden you or to overwhelm you, but simply to give you a response to how uh, this text is appropriately to be used. Why go through all, all this? Let me just close with this. Three reasons why to go through all this. To clarify, to compel, and to celebrate. For, to clarify. I wanted to clarify this for you. I wanted you to understand this position. I wanted you to understand how this text is used in support of that position. And I wanted you to know how to respond to it in, in case you have to respond in any capacity. So, first of all, is I wanted you to clarify, I wanted to clarify it. Number two, I wanted to compel you. I want to compel you that if you're here this morning and you've been holding back on baptism, I want to persuade you to think differently. And I want to compel you that perhaps you're here today and you just haven't been baptized by immersion, or maybe you're here today and you've been sprinkled as an infant, but you've never been baptized by immersion. I want to persuade you and I want to compel you that the New Testament model for baptism is not infant sprinkling, but believer's baptism. I want to persuade you to become obedient to Christ's commands and be baptized in fulfillment of the instructions that He's given. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded to you. It's a command. And so I want to compel you to rethink your position if you've been holding back and convince you to be baptized. Thirdly, to clarify, to compel, thirdly, is to celebrate. I wrestled with whether to do this message this morning because it doesn't sound very celebratory. We should celebrate today because there are four people who, once I stop talking, are going to come here and they're going to give their testimonies of faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to come up here and they're going to tell you what Christ has done for them. They're going to come up here and they're going to give you public testimony of the fact that they were once dead in sin and now alive in Christ. They're going to come here and they're going to testify that Christ is their Lord, their Master, their, their Savior. They've been redeemed. They've been forgiven. They're a new creature, creature in Christ. They're a new creation. They've been forgiven. They're, they got a new lease on life, and they're going to heaven on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone. And they're here to put a stake in the ground, and they're saying, I am here to follow Christ. And that's what we should be celebrating. Infant baptism is not a celebration of that. Is it? Infant baptism is not a celebration of faith because the infant doesn't have faith. But today we're celebrating the faith of those who have been brought to faith by Jesus Christ and the sovereign grace of God. And there's a sense of joy and celebration as we gather together to hear their testimonies. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to wrestle through these things biblically. Lord, I pray that this has not been overwhelming. I pray it's not just been a theological dump, but Lord, I pray that we would together as a church family today see the clarity of your word and that we would respond appropriately and biblically to the command of baptism. Lord, we thank you in advance for these four dear people who are going to come and give their testimonies. We pray for them. We pray that you'll encourage them. We pray that you'll strengthen them. And we pray that the honor and the glory will go to Jesus Christ, 
for the work that He's done in redeeming these souls for eternity. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.